The obesity epidemic in the United States has brought recent attention to potential biologic and genetic mechanisms of weight gain, loss, and maintenance. But scientists have been studying non-behavioral factors in obesity for more than a century. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Chin Zhou, a lecturer in the Department of the History of Science at Harvard University. Dr. Zhou has written a perspective article on the history of inquiries into the biology and genetics of obesity. Dr. Joe, although your perspective article is about biology and genetics, you've also been studying the history of socioeconomic aspects of obesity in the United States. So what's your sense of the balance between biology and environment as factors in obesity? It seems that the predominant view among obesity researchers is that obesity is a function of the interaction between genes and the environment. So the idea is that we're all uh, sort of biologically encoded via evolutionary adaptations to store fat efficiently because our forebears existed in the state of feast or famine. But of course, those of us in the contemporary developed world no longer exist in this state of feast or famine. And food, and calorically dense food in particular, is ubiquitous. And so you know, when you have this combination of being predisposed to be drawn to calorically dense food and lots of it and an environment sort of that makes it possible to consume that food, what you have is a majority of Americans, that is two-thirds of all Americans being classified as either overweight or obese. So it seems like, again, it's not one or the other, according to most researchers, but the interaction between both the environment and, and genetic predispositions. And how has that historical struggle over biology versus environment versus behavior affected our ability to address the problem of obesity? Well, in terms of the evolution of treatment for obesity, there have been changes and also continuities as well. So first with the continuities, you know, physicians have you know, noted the influence of diet and exercise and weight going back all the way to the early modern period, and certainly in the 19th century as well. And, you know, we tend to think of particular diets like the low-carb diet, for instance, as being relatively recent phenomena. But, you know, they've actually been around for many years with the low-carb diet, at least 150 years or so. In the 1860s, for example, you had this English undertaker named William Banting, who published this pamphlet called Letter on Corpulence, Addressed to the Public. And in this very widely read pamphlet, which was read on both sides of the Atlantic, Banting described how his personal physician had advised him, he was quite overweight, had advised him to consume a more low-starch diet. So he had to stop eating bread and potatoes and drinking beer. And so this idea that being a, a low starch or in, our, in today's parlance, a, a low carb diet to keep the weight off, that's been around for a long time. There's also been some discernible changes in how physicians have gone about treating obesity or getting patients to lose weight. So I sort of sense two relatively recent shifts, one occurring in the mid-1990s with the Fen-Fen tragedy. So as your listeners may be aware, Fen-Fen, which stood for fenfluramine and fentermine, it was a drug combination 
that was meant to suppress appetite. And the FDA approved this drug combination in 1996. And, you know, as soon as it was approved, prescriptions abounded. There were some 18 million prescriptions for Fenfen were written. But then it was found that patients, some of them suffered heart valve damage as a result of taking the drug. A few patients even died. And as a result of these various serious consequences, the the FDA pulled Fenfen off the market in September of 1997. And so a consequence of this seemed to be that physicians were more cautious about prescribing weight loss drugs to overweight and obese patients, and and certainly the FDA was more cautious about approving them. Sort of another development in the treatment of obesity seems to be greater recourse to bariatric surgeries. So this would include gastric bypass and gastric lap banding. And these procedures appear to be among the most effective means of producing significant long-term weight loss among patients, especially given that there haven't been drugs that seem to be as effective and improve surgical techniques. Sort of controlling complications arising from these procedures all seem to have contributed to their increasing use by physicians and surgeons. You note in your perspective article that a majority of Americans still believe that obesity is caused largely by a lack of willpower. And you trace some scientific hypotheses, for instance, hypometabolism, that seem to have been held by the public long after they were discarded by scientists. So how can we keep the public up to date on scientific progress in this area? Why is it so difficult to change beliefs? Yeah, in terms of how to keep the public apprised, I think it's happening when you have journalists, for instance, you know, Gina Collada at the New York Times writing about sort of developments in research and publishing, you know, very accessible articles in sections of widely read periodicals such as the New York Times. But, you know, there is this resistance if these surveys are correct in sort of appraising where the public stands on the etiology of obesity. And, you know, there are a variety of possible explanations for why this resistance endures. One could be that people may be reluctant to believe that obesity is heritable because it could mean that a a host of other behaviors that we regard as morally transgressive could be blamed on genes. So perhaps there's a slippery slope aspect. Another possible explanation could be that, you know, there might be some resentment on the part of some that the obese supposedly live these self-indulgent lives while those who aren't, you know, are sweating it out at the gym and denying themselves and such. And finally, I think that sort of people disinclined to see obesity as genetic, they want to believe that we have considerable agency in our lives and that people should be held responsible for their behaviors. The theory of metabolic homeostasis, that the body has built-in mechanisms that resist temptations to resize it in the long term, as you say, has some fairly consistent empirical support. How have anti-obesity efforts over the years been affected by that? First, I should sort of qualify that and say that it seems that most obesity researchers today subscribe to the idea of a settling point rather than a set point theory 
So a settling point is more elastic than the rigid set point theory. Um, the settling point allows for a greater consideration of the environmental factors that may contribute to obesity. Now, in terms of treatment, of course, the settling point theory is more amenable to environmental interventions, in particular, the idea of reforming the food environment and making the physical environment more recreation-friendly. But even if one subscribes to this idea of a more rigid set-point theory, there are possible treatment interventions. So, So some studies suggest that the mechanism by which calorie burn is reduced as a result of reduced calorie intake is that the body has these subconscious adaptations, namely that there's this reduced energy expenditure. So what this means, for example, is that if someone reduces her usual caloric intake, her body will try to preserve the reduced energy that it's taking in. And so this person might be fidgeting less. And all of this means that in the end, fewer calories are burned. So possible treatment could be trying to get patients to consciously increase their energy expenditure, knowing that their body might be involuntarily reducing energy expenditure in in everyday habits. What's known today about the genetics of obesity? What's the state of our knowledge? As I point out in the perspective piece, researchers are looking for gene variants that may predispose people to obesity and how these gene variants may affect hormone levels and how one receives the signals that these hormones are supposed to be sending. An area of research that seems to be eliciting a lot of media attention, at least, is looking at the relationship between weight and gut bacteria. So this is the idea that particular constellation of microbiota can induce weight gain or weight loss. And, you know, there have been studies which have found that patients who have had gastric bypass, for instance, that their microbiota looks quite different post-op compared to before they had gastric bypass. And it's not clear whether this is a result of the gastric bypass procedure itself or whether it's a result of dietary changes that the patient has made and the weight loss that has occurred. Also, there was a really intriguing study published in the journal Science last year in which researchers transferred gut bacteria from humans to mice. So they had human twins, one being obese, each twin set consisting of an obese twin and a non-obese twin. And their gut bacteria was transferred to mice. And what the researchers found was that the mice who had received the gut bacteria from the obese human became obese, whereas the ones who had received the bacteria from the non-obese twin didn't become obese. So this all sort of points to really fascinating areas of research. And promising interventions, it's probably a ways before we have any sort of fecal transplants occurring in humans as obesity interventions, but who knows. Given that, let me ask you finally, what can clinicians and people struggling with obesity do today in terms of effective treatments? Right. So it seems to be that 
the advice that is given to many obese patients is the same as it's been for decades and even over a century, which is, you know, modifications in diet and exercise, despite the accumulation of so much knowledge about the mechanisms behind appetite and weight gain, we're not that much sort of farther in terms of effective interventions, with the exception, again, of bariatric surgery, perhaps. So the same advice that was given 100 years ago continues to be given today. Thank you, Dr. Joe.